sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, uh, we're coming to you live, practically live, from uh, from the good old state of Tennessee, Aaron and I. Uh, how you doing there, Aaron? Doing all right. I have uh, a full house. My you do yes. Second uh, son, son moved son back. Two is showing up. Yeah, yeah, and so we're back to five kids in the house and uh cruising on into the holiday season yesterday wow. was uh was halloween that'll tell listeners when we recorded this because who knows when it'll be up we tried yeah. to go to a neighborhood because we i just wanted to walk around and watch little kids in costumes and yeah. uh i couldn't find a neighborhood with kids in it <laughs> there were two kids in the neighborhoods we went to i think uh, everybody you should treats. Come- you should have come to Mount Pleasant. Oh, how did that it go? Unfreaking believable! How many kids descend on our house at Halloween? That is so great. Uh, you get the Fourth of Julys and the Halloweens. Oh, I mean, just uh, uh, you know, hordes of kids, and yeah. So people come from everywhere. So there were all kinds of cars and trucks and trucks hauling trailers and uh, golf carts and moving masses of kids wow. uh, up and down our street. I thought I had a bushel of candy. Now, do you, do you, I when literally you say bushel, had a bushel of candy. I didn't know you could buy candy by the bushel. You can't. You have to build a bushel, and it it's not cheap. <laughs> okay. It was not enough. I ran out. I eventually had to announce that we were out of money, uh, pull the blinds, shut off the lights. <laughs> they were and, still uh, going? I went out an hour later, and there were still kids outside. Oh, Unbelievable. Goodness. Now, uh, just for the other listeners, because I'm sure everybody knows how much is in a peck or a bushel. How much is a bushel of candy? Well, I mean, it, it, I, I, have, I put at least $200 into that bushel. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, d- does Allie love that? She does. Are you I, it just seems like something. She would just be overjoyed with Watching oh, the little absolutely. kids all dressed up. Absolutely. High, highlight of Ellie's life. Sure. And Are you kidding? What, what did your grandkids dress as? Uh, <laughs> well, see, Wyatt was dressed as uh, uh, Beetlejuice. Okay. Okay. So he was dressed as Beetlejuice, and then to kind of cue everybody as to who he was, he had taped at the front of him uh, a Beatles album and a juice carton. <laughs> Uh, All right. And his twin sister, Ruby, was, uh, I don't know. She was some exotic. I don't know. It's a character from a very popular film that I have never seen. I would not have recognized her until she spoke. I didn't know who she was. Okay. <laughs> nice. Okay. Okay. And then their their big sister was Wednesday from the Addams Family. Oh, fun. Absolutely. Well, hey, before we move on to our guest, you have uh, read a book that was very impactful to you yeah uh, yeah well well yeah i want to mention a couple books i am working through one right now rep, uh, recommended to me by a friend uh, i am only about 30 percent of the way into the book but i'm already a huge advocate of it uh, uh, sold on it love its message 
It's by Sue Johnson, Dr. Sue Johnson, a woman who is largely responsible for the development of emotionally focused therapy, EFT, which we've talked about on this show. Uh, her original book was Hold Me Tight. Uh, the new book is called Love Sense, and uh, it's absolutely fabulous. But I'll tell you what, a book that just got to me on an emotional level uh, was is the book How to Stay Married. Uh, and it's, it's by, uh, let me see. Oh, Harrison Scott Key. So it's a memoir. Harrison Scott Key is a brilliant writer. He's a college professor uh, of writing. He's actually won the Thurber Prize for Humor. So he writes a book. Uh, so and, and he smokes a pipe. And he smokes a pipe. I, okay. I, I only know that because his name's Harrison. And I don't think he can <laughs> be named Harrison without being a pipe smoker. Uh, but his... Uh, his, his story is uh, one of betrayal. Uh, in his case, it was his wife who had stepped out on him. Uh, and she stepped out not once, but twice. And uh, the way he describes his emotional journey through, you know, through this experience of betrayal. Uh, <sighs> First, I, 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 I couldn't put the book down. Uh, I wound up binging it. Hmm. Uh, it was, I, I hesitate to say it was entertaining. It certainly kept my attention and kept me engaged and involved. It was also heartrending, heartbreaking. It helped me to get a little bit more into Allie's shoes, the, uh, the experience of the partner who's been left for somebody else. Uh, and he's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to spoil it for our listeners, but if you get a chance to pick up, I actually listened to the audio version. He narrates it himself. The book is How to Stay Married. Harrison Scott Key is the author. Uh, I, uh, I highly recommend it. Well, we're going to. You know what? I, you know who I heard it from about? You know who recommended it to me was Roan Hunter. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So it came from well, a reputable source. We're going to talk about that book a little bit more in this upcoming interview. So, listeners, you're going to hear a little more about it. So stick around, and we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. This episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast is sponsored by LifeWorks Counseling. Our good friends, Roan and Eva Hunter, and their son, Roe, are not just members of the Samson Society, Sarah Society. They are also trauma-informed, certified sex addiction therapists with a tremendous amount of experience. Well, they and their team of counselors and recovery coaches are based in Madison, Mississippi, but thanks to the internet, they're able to work with people who live almost anywhere. So to find out more about what LifeWorks Counseling can do for you as an individual or as a couple or as a family or to register for one of their upcoming intensives go to lifeworks.ms lifeworks.ms and welcome back to the pirate monk podcast our guest this week is Actually, to those of you who are long-term listeners, not entirely unfamiliar, she has contributed. She's written in uh, over the years, and she now catches up with her story. She's the author of a wonderful book 
called Healing, one patient, uh, one painting at a time. Sheila Harkins is joining us. Hi, Sheila. Hello. Yes, glad to be here. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know that uh, this is the life you envisioned when uh, you married all those years ago or the path you would have chosen. Uh, tell us a little and just bring our listeners up to speed with kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch of your story, if you wouldn't mind, Sheila. All right. Sure. No, not this. My life has not been at all what I pictured. I was a missionary kid raised in Africa and um, came to college in the States to Samford University in Birmingham. Now, now where met, I, I, I got to ask where at in Africa, because that's a big place. <laughs> it's a big place. Zimbabwe okay. was Rhodesia when I first went. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so raised there and then came back as a missionary kid and met another missionary kid and we fell in love and got married. And I just had all these dreams of what life would be. I wanted to adopt, and we did adopt a son mm -hmm. and wanted to go back in missions, and we did go back in missions. Um, so just different ideas and thoughts that I thought the Lord had planted in my heart. So we moved to Bangkok, Thailand in 1997 and um, just thought we were in agreement that everything was going well. We did, our adopted son did struggle a lot. Um, that we reconciled with him in later years. So anyway, I thought we were living the life that I dreamed of. We were the home that, you know, all the teenagers came and hung out with our kids and open house mm -hmm. and um, all that changed. It's been, I'm coming right up to my D-Day date, which was November 13, 2015. So it's been eight years now uh, with wow. some confessions and things that I didn't know secrets um, so that was very devastating to me, but I'm also one of those like, okay, so what do we need to do? How do we fix this? Uh, so research, research, and that's how I came across you guys and this podcast. And I have been listening, I think since, uh, 2017, um, I think I first heard you on a sexual integrity summit, Nate, and read your oh, book okay. and have been uh, listening for a long time and have really appreciated it because your story brought such hope and you interviewed so many people what brings so much hope. And so I really thought we're going to be one of those stories that can also mm. say God not only healed our hearts, he healed our marriage and restored it. And I was looking for the bow and the a tidy yeah. ending and the the story to share. And even, you know, for years, I, I didn't picture, I wasn't allowed to think of the word divorce. I was raised where you didn't think of that. You didn't uh, put words to it. It was like, you're never allowed to say it. It's not part of your vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, I even remember being raised with um, the book from Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, and how she's asked, have you ever thought about uh, divorcing Billy, and she says, "Divorce? No, murder? Yes." So no, it was like it, it's on that same, you know, it's way over there, and you don't even think or let yourself um, even look at that. But as the was, years went by, was there and, some, uh, real quick? Yeah, go just, ahead. I'm, uh, I grew up in a, a church with a, a lot of missionaries. Um, yes, to the same area you were at, wow. and there was uh, certainly a particular style mm. of upbringing and theology that went with that. Yes. Was there anything in the way you were raised to understand God and how he works that created that idea that this is always going to, if we work hard enough and if we trust God enough, it'll always have a happy ending? 
Yes, yeah. I definitely think that that somehow, whether, you know, from church culture, missionary culture, wherever it came from, the Christian culture I was in, I definitely thought that if I follow the formula, you know, if I stay a virgin until I'm married, if I marry a godly man, if we have the same dreams and visions, if I do these things, then life will look a certain way, right? And then you teach your children that, do these things, and then you've got this happy home. And for me, it was never about wealth or money. Um, I had just amazing parents. My dad's a general surgeon, um, and yet he spent all those years in Africa, you know, during the AIDS uh, epidemic, just all those things. I saw sacrifice. I saw love. And my parents' faith was contagious. Theirs was a very generous and warm faith. But just from around me and the church and the culture, and I don't think I understood grace at all because it was so much more of a, a you, you be a good girl, you do good things, you behave well, you put that smile on your face, right? Like somehow, <laughs> I think even the songs we learned, right, that we're in, right, out, right, happy yeah. all the time, uh, just kind of all just flowed in that that's where, what I thought. So I don't know if I'm skipping ahead in the story, but when when karma Christianity didn't work out, yeah. uh, what did that do with your relationship with God? Did you blame yourself and go to shame, or did you feel anger towards Him? Mm. Oh, that's good. I've never been asked it that way, Aaron. But I, I would say you, you go through, or I went through some of both. I think the shame for sure, like— as I was trying to hold it together. And, and part of my story is that adopted son in 2019 at age 34, he took his own life. So I lost him to suicide in 2019 and then lost my marriage in 2020. Wow. So there were two major things, two words that were never part of my vocabulary, suicide and divorce. And the pieces start crumbling and you're thinking, what did I do wrong? And the shame is saying you weren't a good enough wife. You didn't look good enough. You weren't uh, kind enough mom or or involved enough or he would have told you he was depressed and you could have done something about it, you know, then the shame heaps on. But then there were also certainly days of, of God, where are you and and how could you allow this these pieces to be falling when um, when I've done everything that I thought you've asked me to do? Mm. Okay. Well yeah. back back to your story. I sorry I interrupted for that. I was just curious where the foundational part of that would go in your heart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I did, you know, from 2000, end of 2015 to 2020, work so hard on my marriage. And um, I think that as you're in counseling and as you're trying everything and anyone, and we would fly the States and meet with people that I would have, you know, heard on the sexual integrity summit or followed their podcast, I, I would just do whatever. And eventually at the beginning of 2020, my children actually asked their dad to go into a therapeutic treatment six week program mm -hmm. because we all were shattered that the things that he said he was and, and the things he taught were not um, adding up in his life. And was, so I went into that with hope. Was he, that, part, yeah. before that happened, when you were yeah. doing the work, for those yeah. years, was he participating as much as you were? Well, I would have liked to think so. <laughs> I look back and see that I have a very strong denial piece in that that effort to make everything look okay <laughs> and to hope that everything's okay. Yeah, I always thought he's meeting with men. He's listening. He's going to Samson meetings. Like I always thought he's doing the things, but then there would be more confessions and there'd be more disclosures, and my heart would be broken again and. Uh, yeah, so it was just that cycle on and on. 
And so I think that when we came to that six-week treatment place, that was when I really felt if this doesn't work, like all of our money, all of our time for years has gone into this, but I can't keep driving it and I can't keep coming up, uh, me and the kids with these suggestions of what to do and all these things that I found, all these great books and resources, like he eventually will have to do that on his own. So what did the, talk to us a little bit about that uh, trickle disclosure and what that does to a relationship. Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard because when trust is destroyed, you're so wanting to get back on that, uh, you know, I think it's Gottman Institute that has that image of how a marriage stands. And one of the pillars is that truth, right? And that honesty. And when you don't have it, it's just without that trust, it crumbles. And so you're trying to get back to that place of trust. And so you think we're working on it, we're going to counseling, and then there's something new. And and sometimes it's something that happened previously, you just haven't been told that you had no idea. And sometimes it's something that happened that morning that you didn't know. So for me, it was like, you take, you know, you go several days, you go maybe a couple of weeks and then slam again. And, and just that continued pattern where my heart couldn't heal because it was constantly like being stabbed again. That's what it felt like. Like you're, you're starting to heal and maybe the wound and you're starting to think that you can look at your own heart, but then it's back to just uh, laying on the floor weeping again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nate, what are you hearing in, in light of you just reading a book uh, that had similar themes is it are you making any are connections? you talking about the uh, how to save your marriage book yeah are you yeah 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 okay uh yeah that, by the way i just read this memoir called how uh, how, to, how to save your marriage uh, you know wonderful funny heart-rending oh memoir. yes i think i read it it was great oh, 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 yeah, <laughs> so yeah. good uh and it really helped put me in Allie's shoes mm-hmm. uh, and gave me some empathy because, you know, yes. she was on the betrayal side of the, the equation. Right, right. Um, and I think, uh, Allie, at, at times, I, I, not long ago, she said, denial is my superpower. <laughs> I think it was mine, too. I think I was there, too. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> And she really wants to believe the best and wants to believe the best of me. Yes. And uh, if I feed her false hope rather than tell her the truth. And, uh, yeah, to get hammered a second time. And listening to this guy's story who, mm-hmm. you know, he really, you know, his, his wife was unfaithful. They reconciled. He told himself we're all better now. Right. Uh, she's done with him. Only to find out that secretly that connection had continued, and eventually she left. Uh, my, uh, he describes in that book so well uh, just the heartrending emotion of that second betrayal. This, uh, yeah. So it helps me empathize with Allie, yes. uh, and how, uh, yeah, and the, you know the the road rec- the road to recovery for all of us mm. is up and down. So certainly, n- not everybody uh, relapses, mm-hmm. but everybody <laughs> like everybody wobbles, but not everybody falls down. Yes, yes. So especially in early recovery, it's impossible to do that perfectly. Yes. yes. So there are going to be some, but if we do not, 
yeah, if we don't let our mate know truthfully mm-hmm. where we are and what's going on so that they can deal with it, we hide it. And then they discover what the truth is. Now this foundation of trust is undermined. Yeah. Well, yes. Can we speak yeah. f- to, to those who are looking at doing a disclosure in the upcoming months? Um, about the reasons that trickle disclosures happen, because it it seems obvious that that would not be a good idea. But <laughs> at the heart of it, it's a lot of fear, right? If I right. if I say everything, there's no way she's going to let us work on this. I what I don't know. There might be other reasons, but can we speak to them for a minute so that we can encourage them to not do that to their spouse? Yes. Yeah. I think fear is a big one. And I would think with my former husband, that was often like, I knew you'd you'd react this way, or I knew, you know, you'd be upset. Um, But I think maybe even deeper than that is I, or for some people is I don't want to be confronted about this and I don't want to have to look at this and I don't want to admit that it's there. So I think maybe shame, you know, figures into that too. Um, so it seems like it makes sense to rip the Band-Aid off and tell it all at once. But I've talked to many, many women who also have this dire disclosure and this uh, truth trickling in. And it's so painful because you don't know, is he really working on things or is he not? And why do we keep ending up in the same place? And then my counselor would always say, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome, which I kept hoping and thinking things would be different and they weren't. So, yeah, so I think there's a lot involved on both sides. The the betrayed spouse thinking, I can't believe we're going through this again after you just promised me or we would sign contract. We would do all kind of thing, you know, meet with counselors and he'd say in front of them, if this happens, I'll tell her within whatever we agreed on. Um, And then that wouldn't happen. And so then I would be left to think, what do you do when you're repeatedly faced with these broken promises? Mm -hmm. So what happened after the treatment? Yeah, so um, you could tell that he had not done the work. And in fact, that's what they said in family therapy uh, before he came back. They would wanted him to stay longer and he didn't. So when he came home, I was still trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? But before I could even wrap my head around it, just in a matter of days, he walked out and he said he just needed a break. But our agreement had been if he ever walked out, that would be it because my heart couldn't just keep doing this. I want to leave. I want to stay like all this back and forth. So for me, that was the turning point. And that was when I felt God say release and let go. And I think that for women trying to decide, do we keep fighting or do we let go? Fighting for the marriage, not fighting against. You got to know who your enemy is. And God told me early in it that, that, you know, my former husband was not the enemy, that there's an enemy that wants to still kill and destroy, but it, it was not my former husband. Uh, so I was fighting for the marriage and fighting for him and for his freedom. And and I know that the one of the poems I had sent in that you have read a couple of times on your show about singing warriors was we're we're fighting for that release and that redemption. And we want to see that happen in our husbands and we believe in them. God's created them and there's the spark of his image in them, you know. So that's so what I desired. And so for me, uh, it was very, very hard to get to that point of I've done all I can do. And now I release, and whether he works on that's between him and God, that is no longer, um, a, you know, part of what I'm working on. That now I get a more peaceful life to work on my own healing and my own heart. Now, so many uh, spouses that are in your position where it's like, okay, 
I've come to this place, often with the support of others, where I say I can walk away. The accuser loves to start planting those thoughts. Well, wait, was there one more thing I could have done? Maybe this is my fault. After all, did that did that cycle occur for you? Or were or were you just like, here I go, I'm out? <laughs> well, I think I think I did get the point where I knew, you know, we're kind of like, this is the line that that I've drawn. This is what God has said. God has given me permission to release. I do think I felt that peace enough to know that even when the doubts come, I'm going to go back to that, right? Mm -hmm. Like this was a journey. And when, when God said it's time to release, I could do that. And I think before then I couldn't have. And so um, I was able to hold on to that, even though of course on the mission field and uh, background and and different family members, different people, there's going to be people that, think, could you have worked harder? Could you have done more? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there will always be more, of course, we could do. I don't think that's, did you do enough? I I know the, the many books and podcasts and inner work and counseling, I know what all I did, but I think for me, it was more of the timing of God to say, you have done all you can do. And this really is between him and me. It's between his heart and my heart. It It's not mm-hmm. about you. It wasn't about you. It was before he got married. Like, these are not things you can cure or control. And this is you letting go. And so, for me, it was much more about that. And once I had that peace, I have been able to walk in that knowing that. So, then you're now you're processing this new phase of life you never thought you would be in. Yes. And, <laughs> and I'm processing it um, in the middle of a pandemic and lockdown in Bangkok in an apartment on the sixth floor by myself for the first time in my life by myself and after the death of my son. So I'm processing it with a lot of hard uh, not being able to see my other children in the States or my mom locked down. And yet there was a, a beauty and a sweetness of just me and God uh, because I couldn't go into work. So it was locked in with God grieving and weeping and uh, grieving the loss of a marriage, the loss of life as I thought it would be, the loss of what I thought the adoption story would look like. And that's where the paintings came from. That's when I turned to painting. You know, I had often journaled before, but I'd got to the point where I felt like I was saying the same things over and over. And I just remember some days like just even scribbling where I tore papers in my journals. Just the pain was so deep and that wasn't doing it for me anymore. So I, I tried a new, <laughs> new something and I, I'm not an artist, never trained, but I did turn to big canvases and putting that painting out there uh, because I needed a way to express, express the pain. And then I would feel like as I would get that emotions out, God would remind me of a lyric of a song or a verse and speak to me. And often, even in dark pictures, hope hope would emerge because he would remind me of something. So it became a, a conversation with God as well. Okay. So that started. I love, Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I love the way you put the book together. Now, you, you have been very courageous. By the way, for somebody who's not trained as an artist, you're a wonderful artist. Oh, well, thank uh, you. But, but I know it's always, it's scary to show your art to other people. I know this. I mean, like if you, for example, record a song and you let other people hear it. Yes. And it's a very vulnerable place to be. And then yeah, they and put it up on a podcast for everybody. To <laughs> That's right. To. Exactly. That can... And then they keep promoting it to other people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so, but your book is arranged in a beautiful way where you're not only just, uh, you're telling the story, so there's text, 
and there's paintings and you're explaining the significance of each painting. You're describing the emotion that that painting depicts. And it is inspired. It's just a, a gift, a beautiful job. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I knew at first I was just painting just for me, right? Just to get through that time. But my several people, but my mom especially kept saying, you need to tell the stories behind the paintings, like what's the meaning behind them. Uh, So in 2021, I traveled back to Thailand after my daughter's wedding and we had to be in quarantine then for 15 days in a hotel room. You weren't allowed to see anyone. You were locked in and they brought the food to your door. So I thought, well, this is a good time to start putting some words to those paintings. So that's when I wrote uh, a large part of the book and got started with that was that 15 days. So that's a good way to write. (laughs) So I'm I'm curious, um, you know, before we started recording, I mentioned that after my divorce, uh, there were two divorce albums that were recorded within about six months. Mm -hmm. And trying to squeeze a single thought into a few verses and a bridge and a chorus Mm -hmm. helped me see a lot of things from a different angle. That if I had just been journaling, uh, I wouldn't have gone there. So I'm very curious, because you had this other version of that same process, what you discovered that you don't think you would have if you hadn't used a different medium other than talking and journaling? Yeah, I think part of it um, is even the movements with painting. I think even doing the brush strokes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is a release. And then I think seeing the colors, things I didn't even know I was feeling, like you start to see it and think, yes, um, that that is what I'm feeling. And um, it, it puts this image in where you're actually looking at it and seeing and remembering and God's promise is there. And so I think it gave it colors and texture and uh, just a different way to wrestle with that grief and to wrestle with my shame, whatever it was that I was feeling that day. Uh, It was just that conversation with God and I and painting felt very different than journaling or talking to a friend. And it felt, um, more of a conversation with God and more of this huge outlet, I think for my entire body to get some of that pain out. Wow. How did you happen upon art therapy? Where, how did that solution come about? <laughs> well, um, I, I actually, I have a daughter that works in Thailand with me and we were leaving school one day in that early 2020 um, when my former husband was in the treatment program. And she said, well, mom, I'm going home to some cat therapy, you know, my pet therapy. (laughs) And I remember saying, oh, I need to go home to some therapy. I don't have any therapy up there when I climb up my, I don't have an elevator in my building. So I climb 95 steps at the end of a workday. So I was thinking, what do I need up there? Um, So I thought, well, I'm not a musician and I don't have pets, but maybe I could try painting. So I did buy some canvases and art. And I, I tried, you know how YouTube has like kind of do this, do this, do that. Mm -hmm. I tried the first two days. I tried following step by step and my paintings looked horrible and I felt more of a failure than before I started. I thought this therapy is not working at all. But then uh, the third day I just put out my emotions and I ended up painting an eye on top of all these dark colors. And then I just labeled it shame. That's what I was feeling. The shame this, this missionary woman who'd always dreamed, I grew up in a missionary family and dreamed of being on the mission field and dreamed that our home would be what shows the gospel, the way Jesus loves the church. And that was, was gone and, and just falling into pieces. And I just remember um, labeling that first painting as shame and seeing those dark colors. And then this eye like 
this is what's behind my eye. I have to go to work and put on other, you know, faces uh, for my job. But inside, uh, this is one of the things I'm feeling. So then I just painted an anger eye and a fearful eye. Like I just started with that and then it came from there. So it was a total surprise to me because I, I've never done art before. <laughs> so Well, and I, I just love that the shame piece was saying my family is not going to exhibit the gospel in all these ways. And yet your story exhibits the gospel exactly as Jesus brought it to a broken world and that a perfect home with no visible cracks only brings deep shame to people whose lives are full of cracks. Yes. Yeah. Mm, mm -hmm. mm, mm. Yeah. I think it, it, I think it's a lesson I'm still learning. Right. Um, I know this summer or since I've been in the States, I keep running into Philippians chapter one, wherever I go. And Paul's saying like, I could remain with you or I could depart. Um, it'd be better to depart and go be with Jesus. But then he says, uh, but for your sakes, I need to remain for your fullness and your joy. And I feel like uh, just really hearing God speak that to me, that he's chosen for me to remain uh, for a good reason, for his purpose, um, for joy, for life. One of my paintings is, um, oh, sorry, I thought this was plugged in. Okay. We can hear you. Yeah, we can, we can. Okay. All right. My apologies. Yeah. So in talking to a counselor, I remember crying and saying, I don't want to become a bitter old woman. And he said, well, what do you want to become then, Sheila? And just thinking that um, this image came in my mind of a book I'd read years ago um, by Patsy Claremont. And in it, a lady is... Um, um, She's dancing in her kitchen after she's had all these tragedies. And I just said to my counselor, I want to be dancing in my kitchen. You know, that's that's who I want to be. And it seems so absurd. Like, how can you sing or dance again when you've lost? It feels like you've lost everything. It feels like everything's ashes. But then thinking that's the beauty of what the gospel is, as Aaron often says, the gospeliciousness, right? That's Yay. the amazing, miraculous <laughs> part is that God can take those broken pieces and he can give us joy and he can help us, um, yeah, be restored in that. So yeah, that's, I'm learning and, that. And, and you're, you get to step into such a Pauline role. You get to be a Paulette. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that was sexist or I'll get in trouble for that, but, uh, you know, just him saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that gets so twisted to be like, be perfect like me. And that's not what he was saying. He was saying, I'm going to be honest and tell you the stories mm -hmm. of being the chief among sinners, of begging God to remove this thorn in my flesh and him saying, nope, sorry, that's a good thing. You just don't get it yet. That what he brought was the honest undulations of a life that was not flat in perfection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he meant when he says, come on, come with me on an honest journey. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to follow Jesus in this way, and I will lead in. I will lead with honesty, which mm. is what you're doing. Oh, I like that. I like that. Say, tell us about your work in Thailand. Okay, so in Thailand, um, I've lived there since 1997, so a long time. And the last 14 years, I was working at a Christian school, and um, I got the privilege of working in the high schoolers. So 400 students at an international school that sends students to good colleges all over the world. And I was the one in charge of the uh, spiritual life. So that was 
really fun to plan chapels and outreaches. And, and I loved it. And I got to see a lot of broken students. And even though I didn't share my full story as I was living it, but I could share what I was learning about grace and the gospel and brokenness and beauty, um, I feel like God used that as I worked with a lot of kids that were trapped in pornography and trapped in loneliness and anxiety in the places that we see teens uh, so often are today. Um, I learned a lot in that job, uh, but at last year around this time, I really felt God was calling me out to do something new and different. So I've been taking the steps of uh, fearful faith, maybe, but um, letting go of the salary job and the job that I had to start a new ministry to go back to Thailand and to address these topics that I love that so many of y'all are dealing with in the States. And I feel like there's books and things in English and resources. And I'd like to take back to Thailand and give some help to people there, whether they're missionaries that are living in shame and don't know how to tell anyone because they may lose their jobs or they kids might lose their school. They may have to come off the mission field. Um, maybe they're trapped in shame. Or for those um, Christian ties that have been taught another message of to try to look perfect, right? And 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 I can share. And I uh, was talking to a Thai woman who had also gone through a divorce, and we had been friends back when our kids were like kindergartners. And we were meeting um, earlier this year, and she said, Sheila, you are the the right person to bring us this message because we already trust you and we have this relationship with you. And I have been there a long time. And um, as someone that grew up on the mission field, I often saw missionaries when their lives fell apart, they just whisked back to America. You never knew it. No one told you they were divorced. No one told you what happened. And um, I really felt that God didn't want me to do that, that he wanted me to walk out my brokenness in front of the teens that I worked with, in front of the other missionaries, and to share that, um, even when life isn't doesn't look perfect, that God is is there and working. And because of that, I've had many people come to me because of writing my story and putting a book out there. So there's relationships there and forming and women contacting me. So I have a lot of hopes and dreams of where I want to take this as I go back. Oh, that's beautiful. So how does, and I don't know, I'm not well-versed on this, but sex trafficking, sex tourism in Thailand is quite a thing, right? Yes, yes. And so how have you seen that affect the teenagers and the people that you've worked with? How, how does that culture and people coming from other cultures to exploit that uh, change the dynamic of that work? Yeah, well, there's several things that, that come to mind. Um, living in Thailand for as long as I have, you see this, um, they wouldn't call it boys will be boys mentality, but it it is a very similar thing to that, just that, well, men will act this way, so you just accept that they're going to visit prostitutes. Like, this is a natural part of life. And so, of course, that does infiltrate the church and ministries. Um, but so often, missionaries come to Thailand, and they're working with the sex traffic victims. Um, it's always like looking at sexual brokenness is out there, like it's the world's problem, and not looking at what about in our own churches? What about our own missionaries? What about our own pastors? I feel like um, there are so many great things that happen in Thailand, but I feel like it's often looking outside the church door. And I want to bring a ministry that's looking inside the church door and maybe even seeing mm. where does the enemy come in the back door? Like what is going on that we haven't seen or talked about that we don't acknowledge in our families? Um, that's where I want to come in and, and bring some new teaching and training and materials. 
And I can uh, imagine that wasn't when you were a little girl growing up uh, on the mission <laughs> field. You weren't thinking, and someday... <laughs> no, I didn't know how to say the word sex back then. <laughs> I never thought I'd be getting a, a pastoral certificate. You know, I've, I've gotten training with the ITAP and have that pastoral sex addiction certificate and never thought I'd be telling people that I had training in that field and wanting more training in that field. Never, you know, thought that that would be my journey. Um, but I feel like when God opens your eyes to something, I can look back and I know that my former husband never intended that to be his story either. And whenever, whatever happened that the shame paralyzed him and at whatever point it stunted him, um, I know it was because the, the church and the missionary community was not teaching to be honest and open with what you're going through. And so I feel like those things have crippled us and, and you know our story, and I want to be able to help others get freedom from that. Beautiful. Hey, for those of our listeners who want to get a look at this book, is it possible for them to get your book somewhere? It is. You can get it online and Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's Healing One Brush Stroke at a Time. And my whole name thing is very confusing because my name is Sheila Harkins, but uh, I used to email you at Pirate Monk under a page because I was not yet sharing my story. And that's my middle name. And then when I did the yeah, book, yeah. I decided to go with Sheila Page because I didn't know if I wanted to fit my last name. So all that, that's some of the tensions as a wife that we struggle with, with the story that is ours, but it's also someone else's and how to navigate that. But you will find that under Sheila Page, um, Healing One Breaststroke at a Time. All right. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Well, I, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh if Sheila's down for a little different, <laughs> are you down for a few more minutes? A little different. I'm down. Let's try it. He's an adventurous person. I, you know, you look at that. Face. Hey, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I'm getting permission here, but with that permission given <laughs> listeners stay tuned and we will be right back here on the pirate monk podcast. It's questions from Albuquerque. Questions from Albuquerque here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are still here with Paige slash Sheila Page slash <laughs> Sheila Page Harkins. And we asked her to stick around because we still have a few more questions from Albuquerque. Today's question, Sheila, Nate. All right. What are the current percentages of women with a porn addiction and is masturbating wrong? Mm -hmm. Now, let me throw out, I, I did look up some percentages because that one you can't just throw out willy-nilly on people. Um, two, a 2015 survey had 73% of women reported internet pornography use within the last six months. And by 2018, it had gone to 81% who had viewed pornography at, uh, at least once. So it's, it seemed to have been going up even back then. I don't have a 2023 statistic, but through our interactions, and Nate, you can speak to this as well, we certainly see a much larger amount of especially young women yes. using mm -hmm. pornography the way young men do. Yes, for sure. Working in a school with high schoolers, I would say that's that's very, very true. And we, when we first started teaching, when I first started working there on trying to talk about some of these topics, 
we had our porn classes just for guys. And then over the years, the girls started asking, why are we not included? Why are you not helping us? And so it was really interesting to watch that and to watch that grow, like you said, as the statistics changed and it became something that that most girls were seeking, uh, maybe just for curiosity or to know what everybody else, um, sometimes I think the reasons behind it may be different. But yes, I think the numbers are uh, very high. So... I mean, there's a, there's a couple things. One, I think back to an early men's retreat I did probably in about 2001 or 2002, and I had a counselor come and be the speaker, and he talked about going to Germany and how because of a lot of the ways the boys will be boys or just acceptance of a lot of, uh, you know, dads taking their sons to a prostitute to lose their right, virginity, right. and that's like a, yay, celebrate it. And he said that pornography use there like between men and women was starting to catch up with each other mm-hmm. and now we're seeing that here but as a woman um there's a different type of shame i have found with women struggling it uh struggling with it where guys will feel like yeah i feel like the only one but they can quickly know they're not the only one <laughs> But it seems like for women I've worked with in the past, and maybe it's changed, when they struggle with pornography or sex addiction of any kind, they really feel like all the other girls are the good girls and they are some aberrant evil. Can you speak to that a little bit? Right. Well, I think even the fact that we kind of labeled it as a boy's problem or a guy's thing. So for a girl to admit it, there is this this shame or this um, is something wrong with me. It's just not, you know... Um, yeah, am I somehow strange? Or uh, so I do feel like that there could be added layers and more stigma for women and girls to admit that they're struggling. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and maybe even the idea of you know how often we try to say, look, porn isn't the problem, substances aren't the problem. It's an underlying problem. It's a desire for connection. It's broken intimacy. I. Because if anyone feels extra isolated, so if there are added stigmas and problems, then is that harder to not just think, well, then I'm just a pervert, not my heart is hurting and I'm looking for the same connection and love that everybody else is when they're seeking out a source outside of real intimacy and love. Right. It becomes more, there's something really wrong with me, so I can't admit this or say this, right? That, um, And I did find with teenagers that it, it is easier for a guy to talk to me about his addiction than a girl, because she's feeling like, I don't even know if Ms. Sheila's ever heard of this, you know, although we did try, try to teach uh, more that you're not the only one, but um, I think it is harder to come forward and to say the words and to admit it. Even though, like you said, we all have things that we turn to and all our hearts uh, get lonely and needy and uh, we're hurting and it is a symptom of that. So it's a bit telling that this person who courageously sent in this question also asked, and I'm assuming it's a woman. It might not be a woman, but I'm assuming it. And for many women that uh, are just more sexually driven perhaps Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from a young age. And I remember, I remember when I was a youth pastor, someone slipped a note under my door that was written like a ransom note where they had cut (laughs) out the letters 
and it was asking about uh, masturbation, and and it it came from two teenage girls, mm-hmm. and I thought that was I still have that letter somewhere because it was so funny. I have a file of odd things that I got over the years, and that letter stayed. Um, but uh, I remember with this group, I I found a, a woman who's a counselor to uh, offer some conversations because I did not want to lead that conversations with the teenage girls. But uh, what would come up is I do have this heightened uh, sexual desire. And so masturbation would be a part of their life in ways they didn't think were a part of other women's lives. So how is masturbation misunderstood or tweaked with women where guys, we go in a room and we're like, okay, can you just, can we not lie about this? This is a part of your lives, high school guys. Yeah. Well, Nate, I'll let you answer this one. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, we'll put a little hot potato here. <laughs> it's good to be the one asking these questions. But yeah, look, if you're asking me, I, I don't think, I don't believe that masturbation is a sin. I also don't believe that for some of us, uh, masturbation is a good solution. Mm. Uh, I go back to Paul's statement. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Mm. Some, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who have turned away from real connection and found what we think is a workaround mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, in the end, cripples us. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at one point, I had to make the decision that masturbation couldn't be part of my life anymore, mm-hmm. and that's not because masturbation is a sin. I, I quit. I also quit drinking, mm-hmm. and I don't think drinking is a sin. But for me, it got to the point where it was helpful for a time. It no longer was helpful. Mm-hmm. It was time to stop. Mm-hmm. So that's where I land on on, mm-hmm. on masturbation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- I think it is right to address it. Talking about masturbation, not guy masturbation versus girl masturbation, mm-hmm. because it's coming from right. the same desires, the same uh, how how we're wired, and right. yeah, and so what? But Nate, God killed Onan because he was <laughs> whacking off, right? Uh, it's I don't a think death so. sentence. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something. Yeah, it was something about. Uh, yeah, he he wouldn't I, he wouldn't take his. His brother died, right? He took his wife right, right, to the right, Jewish right, law. Right, right. And yeah, yeah, right. so he he was not uh, continuing the family line by impregnating her in his brother's mm-hmm. name. Had nothing to do with masturbation. Right. So, it isn't onanism, despite yeah. what the old books might say. All right. Yeah. So if any listeners are like, wait, but I did hear the Bible said something about it. No. Told, told something of the Jewish law back in those days, mm-hmm. not masturbation. Hmm. So, not not a sin according to Scripture. And yeah, how do you how how would one know when it's like okay, maybe this is crossing a line that's becoming mm-hmm. compulsive? That mm-hmm. I'm including fantasies that are not appropriate fantasies for me to be having, and that's that's becoming a part of this routine. So what are mm-hmm. what are ways that people can assess? Oh, yeah, this is not a problem, or eh, it's mm-hmm. getting unhelpful. Yeah, I think um, 
Nate had used the word being mastered by something. You think of that enslaved, if you're not living in freedom, if you're feeling like afterwards you feel like such a failure and you feel um, this is not who I want to be, right? That Or feeling like you don't have any control. I think those are signs that this may be leading to an addiction or to something bigger um, that, that needs to be addressed and looked at and that maybe you need to admit and get help. Because a lot of times that shame and secrets just fester, right? And then that makes it worse. Yeah. Well, anything else we want to add to this question or the answer to this question? There's a phrase that Roan Hunter uses that I like where he describes uh, sex addiction in its various forms Mm -hmm. as distress avoidance behavior. Mm -hmm. Or if it's what I turn to in moments of distress, rather than dealing with the cause of the distress, rather facing that uncomfortable emotion or confronting that uh, uh, uncomfortable uh, situation where my default is always just to medicate with this thing. That's a sign that this is no longer helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that certainly describes my behavior for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Escapism. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, listener, right. I hope that uh, was at all helpful. Sheila, thank you for jumping in. <laughs> uh, we, we have reached the end, but listeners, we want to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, questions, uh, write to us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And Sheila, how can people, uh, is, is there an email if they had questions for you or if they wanted to contact you? Sure, you can contact me with my email, which is sheilaharkins.place at gmail.com, or you can visit me at my website, sheilaharkins.com, or I'm on Instagram, and it's a.painting.sojourner. You can find me any of those places. All right, wonderful. Well, that's it for this uh, episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. We'd love your reaction, by the way, listeners. Drop us a line at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, then, why don't you join us? You know the you know the rules. <laughs> why don't you join us for the sign-off? Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sheila. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arr. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.